Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tyranny Today. Uh, obviously, a lot to talk about with the, um, well, as I'm sure you all know, the six-month anniversary of the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. Also, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, uh, I guess we'd have to ask Mr. Putin. Uh, it is also the Independence Day of Ukraine. Yesterday was Ukraine Flag Day. Uh, if you're on social media, you saw lots of posts of Ukrainians posting um, posts of the Ukrainian flag, blue and yellow, obviously. You'll see I have a scarf on, beautiful scarf. Um, and and that's how we'll, we'll get to your question. I have this beautiful scarf on, blue and yellow, made by a local fabric artist where I live. Her name is Denise Lawless. And uh, she gave this to me to wear today in the show. Uh, and we might talk a little bit about that uh, uh, in a few minutes. Uh, anyway, I, I want to get Thomas on the show because obviously we've got a lot to talk about. And uh, let me just do my thing to get him here. Thomas, what are you doing here? How did you get here? Oh, oh, what is this? What is this place? Where, where am I? Oh, you didn't give me that part of the script. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> oh, it's something different. Uh, uh, Thomas is here uh, physically, as you can tell. Uh, and I do have to say, um, unlike your father, your acting skills are subpar. So I'm glad you're good at talking about world history and current events. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for getting me over here. Uh, careful, we, we probably are south of Nice and big somewhere, so you gotta be careful what you're saying. Uh, I gotta be careful because we yeah, have a little darker. Yeah, uh, Thomas is here. Um, he explained to me, as some of you know, that uh, you probably, some of you recognize that that is, uh, I, I guess, a gag that uh, uh, John Stewart would play on the with Colbert show. So sorry, I've never seen either of their shows. So, um, but anyway, I hope you got a laugh out of that. Now let's get serious and talk about what's happening in Ukraine. Nice scarf, by the way. Thank you, Denise. Denise Lawless for these beautiful silk scarves. Uh, Denise has uh, some mentors, I believe, in Ukraine or for uh, or Ukrainians living in Europe who have taught her some of her skills as a fabric artist, and she painted these and and, and she gave them to us to wear today. So it is uh, yesterday was Ukrainian Flag Day. Today is the Independence Day in Ukraine and the six month anniversary of the invasion. And, you know, we're making jokes and everything, but obviously there's a lot of serious things to talk about, including your questions, Stutz Hall, or how uh, we will get to that. Um, but let's talk about the lead up to today. There was some concerns about massive attacks on the part of Russia. We haven't seen that so far. It's, it's almost evening in Ukraine. What are your thoughts on this anniversary? Yeah, I think. The, the threats of attacks by Russia, you know, Russia has been attacking for six months. The question yeah. is, well, it actually technically they've been attacking for eight years. That's true. Uh, I guess it's a question of whether they have the capacity to intensify this campaign or not. And currently, probably they do not. Uh, it doesn't mean that the situation won't change. Uh, I think Russia is preparing new battalions from this volunteer forces that were um, set up by a number of different regions within the Russian Federation. Uh, they're being trained right now. I think it takes about a month and a half to get them ready. 
this is not impossible and coming into the winter season we'll see uh you know new reserves being put to work uh, by russia right now i think both sides are kind of exhausted this counteroffensive in the south uh, in the Kherson region is progressing slowly i think what's missing is you know multi-domain support especially from from the air force beyond what we're seeing is very successful attacks on the uh, logistic lines and fuel by the Ukrainian forces. And that's done because it's done in a very smart way. Mm. So the way it's done is that, you know, Ukrainians first sent drones uh, to make the Russian raiders switch on and then basically become visible uh, for uh, Air Force assets that can just take out those, those raiders. Uh, and then there is an attack on the actual targets, right? So it's a kind of a three-pronged strategy. But the assets of Berlin that, that um, Ukrainian have right now, I still hope that we'll see the reinforcement of the Ukrainian Air Force through a number of Western volunteers, many of them of Ukrainian origin. There's some talk about some of them coming maybe from Canada and other countries um, where they could be uh, in a position to fly. Um, Western style uh, assets, I'm talking about aircraft, of course. But I think this is this is early stages, and that's why uh, the situation in the fall plans right now rather blocking both sides with some successes, uh, Ukrainian successes, um, and some big problems. And the problems is, of course, targeting of the um, uh, the batteries, the, mm -hmm. the artillery, uh, which is still very superior, especially in the Donetsk front, main front line. Um, Ukraine doesn't do very well the coordination of the target acquisition. And this is this is this is something that has to be uh, a result. I think Kiev Independent had a pretty good article about it that it takes a little more coordination. Again, multi-domain coordination, between, uh, you know, anti-battery forces, counter-battery forces, infantry in general, and so on. So, hopefully, we'll see some improvement on that on that front line. So, you know, by and large, from the military perspective, I think an administration of somewhat of a stalemate, but it doesn't tell us exactly what's going to happen next. The situation for the counteroffensive for the South, once the rains start in late September, is not great for Ukrainians because it's a very spongy terrain and difficult to, uh, to cover uh, by an advancing force. It's easier to defend such lines than to mm. attack, and you need a significant superiority. So the question is, what happens with the numerical superiority? And the, I don't have an answer. You know, what happened to it between 250 and 500 uh, Soviet-era tanks that came from Poland? Where are they? Does it mean that Ukrainians don't have sufficient forces to actually man this equipment? This equipment is so it's available, um, but we don't see it being really employed in, in large numbers right now. So that, I think that's a, that's a couple of question marks here. Are you suggesting that the Russians have some advantage once the rains begin, or just that the Ukrainians are disadvantaged? So the advantage will be on the side of the defensive lines. Mm -hmm. The Russians plan to defend the south. Well, which is ironic because when you hear defensive, you think Ukraine because they're defending the. No, but, but we have the Russians that we can. They're expecting Ukraine to launch a counteroffensive this summer, right? And it's being it's being it's being slow moving. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of the problem is, of course, this Zaporozhye situation. Yeah, right. So our Russians have. Uh, concentrated number of assets uh, around the nuclear uh, power station there. It's very difficult to take out even with uh, precision ammunition because there's always a risk of something, you know, ricocheting. And well, uh, therefore, that is tying up significant 
Ukrainian forces, uh, of course. So uh, not everything has the, can be thrown into into the southern area. And I think there is also a problem of reserves being trained and prepared. And we know that some of those Ukrainian reserves have been trained outside of Ukraine. Yes. But I don't say in which countries, but we know something about it. And maybe they just simply cannot make it for, you know, in large numbers, in mm-hmm. large numbers to actually support that counteroffensive in the south right now. I have to admit that much of what I'm saying is a speculation. I don't have any inside track on mm-hmm. the Ukrainian mm-hmm. side right now. Can we take a look at um, a couple of the questions and comments that people are making here? Uh, this is from Stutz Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas, love your input. Question, what do you say to average American in regards to the move towards nationalism, the Viktor Orban playbook? What are the pitfalls as you see them and how can it be avoided? It seems like the likes, the likes of Governor DeSantis and Abbott are in lockstep to this idea. I think one thing is that we usually avoid a little bit talking about American politics here. Uh, for we do? Uh, yeah, I think uh, we do so far. Uh, there's less of tyranny in America than there is in, in other parts of the world. But let me just try and address and I address it through the ideology was brought to the White House by Steve Bannon. Uh, uh, and that's an ideology of sort of a radical uh, traditionalism. And that's nothing secret about that. No, and I think he, nothing he, he would say the same thing. Yeah, I think he, he kind of looked into um, the ideas of early 20th century thinkers, such as René Guénaud, who's a, a, a French traditionalist of Catholic origin, and he was looking for some messianistic ideas against rationalization of the West. And generally, Western rationalist, which uh, got a you know strong push since the Enlightenment, and led to a lot of um, counterintuitive ideas during the Romanticism, of course, during you know the Nietzsche's revolution in the late nineteenth century. And the other the other thinker that Bannon brought up into this rejuvenation of American nationalism was um, Julius Evola, who was a, an Italian fascist, and he went even further than Enlightenment kind of posited that the problem of Western rationalism and the, and the fact that rational socioeconomic structure of the world of meaning for people goes back to um, Socratic revolution. Mm. So he was looking for pre-Socratic philosophers who would, uh, you know, in his view were sort of destroyed by Socratic rational syllogism on which a lot of Western tradition was subsequently built, right? Always contraposed against Christianity, but it's still an important, important source. And so um, these um, these sources of you know rejuvenated nationalism in early 20th century, as opposed to romantic nationalism of you know collapse of the empires of the 19th century, uh, they were picked up by some Russians naturally. And of course, Alexander Dugin is that I was given at some point, we got to talk about him Absolutely. and his daughter. So his idea of Eurasianism uh, is a similar idea that that's the West. Let, let, let's actually stop for a minute and just make sure everyone's on the same page with us. Okay. So out and you jump in if I'm wrong about this, but Alexander Dugin, we talked about in one of the first shows here, some call him Putin's brain. I mean, that that's a, a debatable point. But very much in the news literally today, because as you probably saw over the weekend, his daughter, who was also pro-Russian, anti-Ukraine, pro-invasion, was uh, 
blown up in her car, uh, possibly with the idea of getting her father in the car with her. And as you may have also heard, there's an organization called the National Republican Army. So the Russians are saying that the Ukrainians killed Dugan's daughter. She, they call her Dugina, right? Dugina? Dugina? Um, the Russians are saying the Ukrainians killed her. On the Ukrainian side, our own Ilya Ponomonorov, who we'll be doing a show with tomorrow, um, he read on his TV station, if you're a regular viewer of this show, you've heard us talk about it, uh, a manifesto from the National Republican Army, which they're Russians. They're, you'll see them referred to in the news as partisans. So the belief uh, is that there is a organization within Russia that's been doing a lot of the bombing of power plants and things like that, that also killed Alexander Dugan's daughter. So you're, if you Google Alexander Dugan, Dugina, if you Google Ilya Panamanara today, you'll read a whole lot more about it. And I suspect you already have met. Anyway, I wanted to make sure everybody understood where we were at. Scoot, scoot background. So, so Dugan's um, ideology is typically Russian nationalism, right? That, that falls, however, in the same category. And this is what brings us back to battle and by extension to uh, that sort of populist, right-wing populist wing of the Republican Party, which is no other wing by the core of, of, of the party. It's the idea that uh, contrary to what um, progressives think, contrary to what neoliberals think about capitalism, who believe that things are progressive, right? There's some optimist, traditional optimist in American um, uh, public sphere in general, right? You, if you build a business, which is our main core of activity in the US, you have to connect the goals, which is the strategy of your next step. For that, you need to look into the future, right? You, you know, naturally you, you discount something, you discount future cash flows to, to the present time. So you have to save somebody of the future. You focus on the future, but that's not what Dugin's Eurasian and, and, and his uh, seeds that he also found not only among the you know, Messianic Russians, but just like Steve Bannon in those early 20th century nationalists, is that things are not improving. Things are actually getting worse. And when you have the entire strata in the society over the last two or three decades have seen no improvement in their materialist world, for example, in the United States, because of deindustrialization under the second Bush presidency, when so much business was exported to China and elsewhere, all these people, of course, they live without much hope. You have to make sense of that experience. Things are getting worse. And here is someone who brings you some meaning to it, say, we understand you. We understand that things are getting worse, right? You had politicians of the previous era who would say, well, if you think like this, you're deplorable. You know, you make no, no sense. You know, we, we're not going to talk to you. And then other really astute people came up saying, oh, you know what? That's a source of political power. We understand that you see that the world is collapsing. It's getting worse. And we have a myth for you to believe in that we will generate a rebound. We will help you. And we understand your sense of victimhood. And so nationalism plays very well to this. Anyway, now nationalists by definition don't have so much in common because very soon their interests start clashing, right? There is no like international of nationalists. It's, it's oxymoronic. But in terms of 
ideology, especially this cosmological level, you can find a lot of, um, a lot of common threads. So I think, yes, the question is very well, uh, said there is some commonality of root sources of that belief and, uh, it's relatively novel in America, but it's sort of, you know, the seed has been planted and, and it's been flourishing since 2016. We, we think of ourselves as a nation of optimists. Yes. Although there are some precedents, you know, Andrew Jackson's presidency, of course, mm -hmm. right. Also going to rule all people and basically let's get rid of these elites. They have everything. You have nothing. I'll offer you X, Y, Z. Right. So there is a little bit of that tradition in America too, which is mm -hmm. we forgot about. But also when you're talking about these people who, who have lost mm. and have no hope for the future, you could have just as easily been talking about Russia after the outset. Yes, obviously. Right. So, you know, here in the case of Russians, it's good to talk about it as we just take stock of these six months, what, what Russians actually think, right? So what Russians felt before February 24th and what Russians think on June, uh, June, all this time Yes. And, uh, the picture is not great. The picture is not great. If you're, if you look at it with our post enlightenment rationalist thinking, right? Because we see what the facts on the ground are and they're just terrifying and, and the war continues at a huge cost for everybody. And then, you know, what does it mean? You know, what do, what do Russians think? And unfortunately, um, from the perspective of the, uh, war of hearts and minds, we have not made any uh, inroads in Russia mm -hmm. quite quite the contrary. And I think there are four elements to it that we can quickly go through. Um, the first of which is of course the dream of empire, right? So Russians, um, Russian empire really matters on the European continent and beyond since early 18th century, moment war. So we often talk about Peter the Great, but Peter the Great, you know, he built a great, uh, capital, a nice city, which not him, but Mr. Trezzini, who was a Swiss architect. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, it really starts around the time of Empress Anna, who was under strong German influence in 1730s. Why? Because this is where Russia, uh, very clearly, uh, set this, a, a number of, of, of important alliances, uh, in order to exert more influence outside of its borders. One alliance was with, um, another Shah's Persia against the Ottoman empire and more importantly, an alliance with Austria. Um, in, in Europe against France and the battleground was the Polish Lithuanian yeah. uh, Commonwealth because Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth was this bulwark between Germans and Western Europe and Russia. And really before Russia didn't matter so much internationally, Russia was, you know, exporter of fur, fur, mm. you know, fur to China in exchange of tea and fur to the West in exchange of whatever technologies and so on. Uh, and also, you know, some of the princes of princesses from the Russian stock also married with, with Western, uh, monarchs, but other than that, it really didn't matter as an empire. And the moment, um, Austrians and Russians managed to infiltrate the system of elective uh, monarchy in Poland, Lithuania, that particular construct started to shrink. So it was a status quo power. This was not an empire in itself. It was a status quo power between the East and the West, a very critical one of which Ukraine was part as was Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia until 1680s or less, and today's Belarus, of course, and so on. This was part of that empire. So I think the call to call it 
Polish, Poland, Lithuania is a bit of a misnomer. It was a multinational mm. um, construct and it was slowly destroyed because Saxons, so Germans from Dresden were put in power in Warsaw and they ran this country for their own personal needs, but they were supported by Austrians, they were supported by Russians mm. against other French backed powers. And so there, this is the way more or less the Russian empire started growing and started uh, expanding towards the West, eventually swallowing up that uh, Poland, mm -hmm. Lithuanian and Commonwealth in partnership with Austria and Russia, and then became very, very relevant for the, for the European politics. This is something that Russians want to recreate, that relevance. And of course, the oil and gas policy about which we discussed, strategy, which we discussed for a long time, and which was, you know, many decades in the making, was part of this. The good thing is, on Monday, which probably the most important event of this week, was Olaf Scholz travel to Canada. Chancellor Olaf Scholz travel to Canada. Why? Because Germany is in a long-term shift away from dependence on Russian energy. Canada, of course, has a lot of oil and gas. We in the United States, largest source of import of oil is not Saudi Arabia, it's Canada. Mm -hmm. right? But it's com coming by pipelines, whereas you cannot build a pipeline from Canada to, yeah. to Russia. So you'll have to use um, uh, maritime transportation. Of course, for gas, it's complicated. It requires liquidation, liquefaction uh, uh, infrastructure, which is just not there. So possibly Germans will participate in building that in Canada. Yeah. And, and so it's strategically a very long-term process, but it's a process that means that maybe not going back to, uh, to the pre-February 24th arrangement, unless something dramatic happens in Russia, not least to Alexei Vladimir uh, Uh, which is still possible. I think still hope in some parts of say Estonian uh, ruling party and in, in Germany. Let, let, let me ask you a question, a question about the oil and gas part of that. Let's say nobody in the West ever buys oil or gas from Russia again. Are there other customers in the world? There are other customers in the world. But the, the frictional costs of this mm -hmm. are, are very high because it's going to take a long time. So for, or it can take a long time for the West to wean itself off. It's going to take a long time for, to establish yeah. supply chain yeah, and to just new customers. Numbers are simply not uh, You won't find a, a replacement of, the, of that side. So for oil, possibly you can, or for gas, it's highly unlikely. Mm -hmm. um, but this is, this is still a very significant source of earnings for Russia. I mean, only about one third of these earnings is used for the war. So, you know, it still gives a significant surplus. This is why Russian economy has only shrunken by about 4% in the, in the yeah. third quarter, the first full quarter, second quarter, first full quarter of the, of the war. Um, and, you know, expectation was something like, so that hasn't, hasn't happened. So that the fact that the empire is coming back. Uh, is a source of great pride for many Russians. I mean, I hear, or oh, actually some Russians, um, contacting brokers to offer them what ground for real estate around Kiev and Odessa. Really? That's how ambitious it is. You know what it reminds me of? No. Syrian war. Who was buying all this property around Damascus during the first and second year of the Syrian war? Iranians, mm. of course, Iranians, right? So, Iranians accumulate a lot of this real estate 
hoping when can I get it cheaper right. and during the war, right? right? And the first time the shop comes and putting, you know, barges in in 2015, but in fact, Russians were not interested in competing for the real estate. They were interested in stabilizing us in essence, becoming again, allies of our land. Right. Um, this is something similar early stage. You know what? Am I, I'm a colonialist. I'm an imperialist. I better kind of back it from this. So it's not just only an ideological thing. It's also a very materialist. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's, that's the empire situation. There's a material uh, extension piece. So I want to ask you a question about this. Um, cause there's an uncomfortable balance. It seems to me here. Mm. So on the one hand, we want Germany to wean itself off of Russian oil. We want and gas, we want Europe to wean themselves off. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we hope Ilya's right mm. and that Putin is not long for the world and that Russian becomes a democracy and then they're going to need those customers back again to have a thriving economy and to be a participating member of the global economy. So how, how do you manage that, that balance? The risk is this black and white thinking that here's Putin mm. here and here's democracy and there's nothing in between. Mm. And unfortunately, when these systems collapse, they transmute into another form of authoritarianism, maybe electoral authoritarianism, mm. something like that. I am. When I am concerned about this particular scenario mm. is that following physical demise of Vladimir Putin, someone else would be put uh, on top and the Germans and others say, oh, bingo, fantastic. Well, that guy's totally talked about this last night. That guy is gone. And now, you know, let's go back to the old system. Meanwhile, there are some signs and that's really just my personal thinking. Some signs that there are people around the Siloviki group who actually see this as a potential opportunity. And, you know, Patrushev and Narishkin, Medvedev and others could outlift Putin easily and put a figurehead on top mm. and just say, hello, look, you know, we're perfectly democratic now, the bad guy's gone. Who could be the figurehead? Well, not least Navalny, you know, there is a reason why they have kept him alive mm. and he's very strongly imperialistic just to round off on that, on the, mm. he believes that Ukraine should be part of it. Russian empire. So, but, you know, heavily focused on by the Western media and a good kind of fig leaf for it yeah. to go back into business with Russia. So, you know, democracy just magically emerging out of the current system didn't happen after Soviet Union. Why would it happen after Putin? Mm. That's difficult to be very optimistic. So I think, yeah, empire is, is one thing. I think another thing that makes Russians so supportive of the Putin's, uh, Regime, I think, is over eighty percent support and seventy-three percent, I think, support mm. for war. Oh, sorry, special operation. Um, I think that's the messianistic uh, myth of the role of Russia in general. So one of the one of the most typical myths that 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 we have all in our kind of our, you know Jungian archetypes is the myth of Libra. Goes back, I think Karen Armstrong beautifully wrote about myths, and she said when Neanderthals used to bury people, they buried them in the fetal position, mm. keeping so them get ready for Renaissance, right? Yeah. Renaissance, which from Latin means rebirth, and so rebirth is this ideology that totalitarian and democratic regimes just want. Why? Because you're suffering, right? 
things are getting worse, but we'll make sure that they'll get better. That's the river. Think about Xi Jinping and his great rejuvenation, right? As long as we grab Taiwan, hope you rejuvenate it. It's fantastic. In the Russian case, the Russian tradition is a little more uh, rich cosmologically than the Chinese one, more kind of down to earth. Uh, but it's still the ideology is there, you know, the Xi Jinping part. Here, Russians think more in terms of Russia's role in the redemption, global redemption, especially in Western, Western culture, right? This, this, this rotten West, you know, has gone so far with LGBTQR, this, so I'm missing the rest, but anyway, they, they just are very, it's, um, it's interesting how fixated they are on that one thing. Is that just because it's a lot of rice or fixating uh, on, uh, you know, um, like the role of the, of the third role, right? Mm -hmm. The Russian Orthodox church and so on, that this that there's this messianistic um, role for Russia to play. And, you know, Putin's own ideology is heavily borrowed from monarchists such as Ivan Ilin, for example, right? Who had this idea of consciousness of law. So just basically um, allowing a system like this, a monarchist system to naturally um, uh, lead to this, this osmosis between the state and the society, whereas the Republican systems um, enforce radical movements, you know, too many steps ahead and so on. That's destabilizing, right? And then Nikolai Dordarev was another uh, uh, Russian emigre post post Bolshevik revolution uh, and big influence on on, on yeah, Putin. He actually saw Comintern, so the Third International, as this replacement of the Third Rome. So that even under the Bolshevik system. This supposedly international communist system of spreading communist is not really international, according to Gregory, but Russian, which mm. was true, was Russian mm. dominated, right? Mm. And so he viewed that, you know, because of the, of the schism of the Russian orthodoxy in the 17th century, the idea of third long could not be really executed. And so a different idea of Russian leadership in the world, ideological leadership could be then achieved through this international communism. Uh, and so very interesting, he, he viewed that rejuvenation or redemption as in Russian case, either apocalyptic or revolutionary, right? And these things kind of come back. So I think this, this messianistic, um, this great role of Russia. So beyond just the empire, which sooner or later has its own kind of limits, right? Natural and unnatural limits within some, some, some form of borders. Um, this messianic thing goes way beyond this, just the basically message for the entire It's point. actually a more, I am, it's, it's, it's a fun, it's full of fundamentalism in a sense. Yes. Um, and so in some ways it's even more dangerous because there's nothing you can say to change somebody's mind about it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it, there, it's not, it's not a level of events. It's not um, logical. It's not practical. It's, no, it's not the level of facts, which are descriptions mm. of the facts. Then right. it's just not, you, you cannot undermine a myth per se. If you actually undermine a myth, um, the former myth becomes a poem that people just, mm. you know, can you give us an example of that? Well, any conversion, religious conversion is mm. like this, right? So your previous conversion is basically becomes mm. like a source of disgust, right? Mm. Yeah. So it's a, it's an extreme example of that. So I think, you know, um, it's so easy for, so I want to just, I'm thinking about what you just said, and you just gave us a religious example, mm -hmm. but another example, perhaps that is 
that is separate from religion of a conversion is I'm thinking about a non-smoker, not who becomes an evangelist and, you know, will will not stop terrorizing his smoking friends mm. or an alcoholic who doesn't stop terrorizing his drinking friends, even if they're not problem drinkers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a similar kind of phenomenon. It sounds like, oh, you know, I used to be this way. Now I'm different. And if I don't keep telling you how much better different is, then I can't keep faith for it in it myself. I think it's a good, it's a good example. Having said that, it's an example and always a good personal law because yeah. you have also your physical yeah. aspect that's involved in that. Right. I think we should always be cautious just taking personal to collective mm -hmm. because already the, the nature of the other is different. Yeah. Right. So what you're saying is that he's going to interact with other people directly, right? Mm -hmm. Our idea of the other as a personal experience right. from, from day one or day two, we go to school, you have a friend and right. a girlfriend and you have a wife. That's something that's not just symbolic, right. but at the collectivity level with these myths always involved in yeah. um, interaction with the other, whether it's creation, whether it's rebirth, whether it's, uh, uh you know, the end of the times, right. Or whether it's heroes, like in Hollywood movies, that's like mythology, there is always the other, but the other often is a collective other. And with the collective other, if we, if we told that we should hate, for example, the Ukrainians, mm -hmm often without any connection to them, right? They yeah. are the symbolic level only, right? Right. And then it's a shock when you meet some people who are super nice, right? Yeah. How do you deal with that? Right. It's like, oh, you're okay. You're just those, you know, Zelandia yeah. here. Right. They're, they're, those guys. Yeah, those guys. <clears throat> because there is a cognitive dissonance. Right. So that's, that's, I think, this the second. I think the third dimension, which I see, and picked up also by some, some observers in Russia, is that, there is this element of pride that will is superior to, to, to reason, right? Mm. That Putin basically decided, and I think there's some, there's some knowledge now about how limited the group of people uh, who are in the know prior mm. to the February 24th was, right? That even Lavrov up until two days before, he, yeah, he didn't really know mm. that this was going to happen. And yet the, the, the support for this effort has grown right? I think it's just the propaganda. The propaganda uh, needs to lever certain pre-existing elements to be really successful, certain yeah. you know, elements of socialization as we discussed before. And this idea of will, you know, imposing the will, putting basically making a decision in a very small circle mm -hmm. and imposing this will, and then Miss Nablina in the central democracy manages to stabilize the economy. And here we are, you know, no collapse, still selling a lot of gas and basically make the West suffer, right? Because there are energy prices are high. And so the success of the will over reason, because mm. rationally it would make no sense to do something like this and expose yourself to all these risks, right? So qualified success and this will, again, goes back to Nietzsche, right? And the, the, the will to power, the ability to macht, um, you know, clearly always captured by uh, authoritarian regimes as one of the sources. I mean, it was not probably Nietzsche's uh, idea, but he was fighting against also European nihilism, yes. right? European nihilism, the loss of Christianity, late 19th century talk. And it sounds very contemporary, right? right? Um, about the sense of meaninglessness in general, right? How do you find meaning in, in your personal life and collective life? And, and 
you know, general skepticism about morale. And he was attacking all of these things, this European nihilism, which is like the first chapter of that, of that famous book, the, the Welt zum Macht, and, and, and the, the offered will. So rather than like Schopenhauer's case, you know, there's a, there's a drive to want to, to live. And of course, in Freud's case, drive to pleasure, and Viktor Frankl looks for meaning. Nietzsche offers this will, right? And very often you see in extreme cases of authoritarian regimes, uh, that this, this element is picked up through the, you know, just against all odds, but just grab it, make it right. move on. And again, and the against all odds actually feeds the will because you're an underdog. Correct. And when you're an underdog, that in many times is the most powerful place to be and the most powerful place to lead others from. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Eric Hoffer talked about this. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think, I think Russians are particularly sensitive to this idea mm -hmm. right, of, of sort of the superiority of, of, of the, the self overcoming. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is, does this also feed into conspiracy theories? Like, is there, is, it seems to me that, I mean, we've heard a lot about QAnon over the last few years. It seems to me there's a, maybe there's a willful part of this mm -hmm. collectively. We want to believe this because to go back to something you said earlier, you know, we have no hope. It gives us hope. We will it to be true. It begins to appear to be true. Yeah. It's a, it's an element of this entire meaning making mm -hmm. that I think the traditional powers that rely just on the system, the mm -hmm. democratic system, uh, are troubled capturing, you know, democracy is so complicated. Mm -hmm. Will is simple, mm -hmm. right? but you know, Ronald Reagan captured it, right? Yeah. You can, Obama inspires. you can, you can actually create certain elements and, you know, draw from those different Viennese mm -hmm. sources and, and create something, something very positive, but you have to capture the time guys. Yes. And, and not every politician is able to do it. And, you know, uh, Trump is one of those who actually identified very well. Now he offers no solution whatsoever to the economic woes of the group, but makes them happier by generating that. Well, and, and I assume that they feel that he offers solutions. Yeah. Is there legitimate solutions or not? Yes. And this is where I think bearing into American politics is complicated because mm -hmm. I think it's hard for people to listen yeah. because of their opinion. Right. Exactly. So let's, so let's leave that. Let's, let's leave that <laughs> and just go back to, you know, the, the fourth element. So empire, messianistic, mm -hmm. ancient, the will. And I think the fourth one is chauvinist. And this chauvinist is specifically targeting Ukrainian people. Mm -hmm. I think when I'm in contact with some Putinist, the, and it's, you know, often a sense of chuckle, right? Like I, I really, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, the other day, someone sent to me a note that, you know, borscht, the, you know, the, the Ukrainian soup with yes. beets and so on. It's really yummy. There are different versions of it in different Is it Ukrainians? It's not Russian? I always thought it was Russian. Here it is. You got it. <laughs> okay. So, so the idea um, that I received from, from one, of, one of the Putin is that, by the way, Ukrainian borscht uh, was invented by a Russian restaurant in Moscow oh. in 1950. Really? That never existed before. Huh. It was never a borscht in Ukraine. Huh. It was invented just to sell it better in the 1950s. 
Again, I chuckled because the idea of selling anything in the 1950s in Moscow in marketing. Yes. Where were they for? Yeah. So honestly, it was, but when I'm less amused is when I see how those shovelings describe uh, Ukrainians. We use usually the term ho-ho. Ho-ho. Ho-ho actually, it's, a, it's a, often a crest. So it's related to the harvest. Mm-hmm. And so that you're basically pointing out this is, these are just those lowly peasants that mm-hmm. speak this weird Russian language. It's kind of distorted. They wouldn't even say distorted with, you know, Polish influences, right. of, you know, centuries of integration right. there. But they just basically despise them. Mm-hmm. It's such a disdainful, contemptuous, divisive mm-hmm. attitude towards your Ukrainian per se, which makes for all the global picture that we're painting here in on, on the show for several months that, you know, essentially you can consider this conflict as a kinetic conflict between Ukraine and Russia. You can consider this as a European conflict, and you can consider this as this sort of almost a cosmic struggle between United States and China and all of the countries that stay on one side or the other will struggle to find their place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And find their place in a very, um, uh, elusive way, like India in the middle, um, beyond all this, the suffering and the vehemence of the Russian, uh, behavior on the ground has a lot to do with that racist attitudes that comes with this anti-Ukrainian shock. So the Ukraine did less than humans. So we can do the one. Exactly. There are, there are. We are, we are Ubermensch almost, yeah. right? Think about, you know, Dostoevsky, think mm-hmm. about Tolstoy, think about, you know, Turgenev, or even the Soviets, whatever your favorite literary toxin is. Um, and they, what are they? They're just our peasants. Why, mm-hmm. why, why, why does the West integrate with those lowly Untermensch, mm-hmm. those under people? Mm-hmm. And that's something that's not always understandable for Russian nationalists. All right. So next, so there's an article in the New York Times, and I'm sorry I didn't get it ready to share with you today. Uh, I'm actually going to find the title on my phone. It is uh, it feeds into what you were just saying, but I want to hold up and talk about it until next week. The title is, and if you come find me on Twitter, I just let's see if I can find this. Um, I just put it on Twitter just before the show and. You know, the minute I'm trying to do something on my phone, when there's a camera pointed at my face, I become an idiot. So uh, let's see if I can find this. I think this, I'm going to find it here. Hold on, bear with me. Maybe I'm not. Anyway, the, it's a story in the New York, New York Times today. It was written by a former member of the Ukrainian parliament. He's now part of the territorial defense. And he's writing about how the Ukrainians are seeing the most unbelievable behavior by Russians, the Russian invaders, the Russians think of themselves as liberators. And so the Russians come and for instance, they held a woman hostage in her house and they did not believe that she lived there alone because there were two bathrooms. How could you have two bathrooms and live alone in Ukraine, this place of, of peasants and their dogs and the Russians took over this town and, and, and after the conflict ended, the soldiers were riding around on people's bicycles and on, um, scooters, taking selfies and pictures of each other. Like it was their birthdays and they had received gifts because they don't have these things at home. 
and they're stealing things from people's houses because they've never seen them before. And they went into a, a, invaded a small city. And while they were there, could not believe that this beautiful city with parks and beautiful architecture, they thought they were in Kiev because they thought only a capital for the ruler would be this nice. How could just an average city in, in Ukraine be this nice? And suddenly these soldiers are finding out, this is the point of the article, suddenly they're finding out the Ukrainians live better than they do. And I want to say for next week, a conversation about the psychology of that. What happens when you have been told that someone is dirt and then you discover the dirt is you? What happens? So I want to talk about that next week. Um, let's just go through and see if there's any uh, people have been making some comments here. Um, Anna talks about the advertisement in Spain for tempting people to immigrate to Russia. I hope you've all seen the video about, you know, did you see the video a few weeks ago about, it was like a tourism video to come to Russia mm -hmm. and they're touting all their things they have. Vodka! <laughs> uh, you know, an economy that can withstand sanctions. They've actually seen this in the video. It looks like a parody. Um, uh, let's see anything. And I think we've covered almost everything here. Thomas, I want to thank you for being here. Thanks a lot. Uh, I want to thank everybody who's joined us today. Thank you for being here.